Chapter 7. Why can't we just agree that love is love? At the climax of Frozen, Anna's body is becoming ice. She's been told that an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart, so she rushes back to her fiancé, Hans, expecting that a kiss will do the trick. But to her horror, Hans turns out to be a villain. Reeling from this shock, Anna, or Anna, Anna, realizes that Kristoff, not Hans, is the man who truly loves her, so she staggers out into the cold to find him. But then Anna sees Hans about to murder her sister. Anna has a choice to make. Save herself or save her sister. She rushes to protect Elsa and turns to ice just as Hans' sword falls. But as Elsa weeps over her sister's frozen body, Anna thaws. The act of true love that could thaw Anna's heart was not a kiss from Hans or Kristoff, as she thought. It was Anna's own act of love, sacrificing herself to save her sister. In this chapter, we're going to look at the popular claim that love is love. When people say this, they mean everyone should be allowed to date and marry whoever they like, regardless of whether they are male or female. This message seems so powerful. We all know love is good, and that the more love there is in the world, the better. But as Frozen beautifully depicts, there are different kinds of love. Powerful, life-changing, self-sacrificing love need not be sexual or romantic. Sister love and brother love, parent and child love, friend-to-friend love all matter too. But according to the Bible, the most powerful love of all is the love that comes from the heart of God himself. In fact, the Bible tells us not that love is love, but that God is love, in 1 John 4, 8, and that we get glimpses of God's love through different kinds of relationships. Windows into Love We saw in chapter 2 that God created human beings in his image and that he designed us for a relationship with him and with each other. And just as we can see different rooms of a house when we look through different windows, God planned for us to see different aspects of his love through different kinds of human relationships. For example, the idea of God as Father springs out of the Old Testament where God talks about his people, Israel, as his son. Then, in the New Testament, Jesus calls God his Father and tells his followers to do the same. If you have a wonderful dad who cares for you deeply and would do anything to keep you safe, that's a window into one aspect of God's love. But the great news is this. If you don't have a loving father, the Bible says that God loves you more than any human father ever could. The Bible also gives us glimpses of God's love through mothers. For example, in the book of Isaiah, God asks if a woman could forget the baby she is breastfeeding. The obvious answer is, no way. But then God says that even if a mother could forget her baby, he will never forget his people. If you, have a, if you have a mother who loves you with her whole heart and would never forget you, whatever happened, that's a window into God's love for you. And if you don't have a mother who loves you like that, God loves you more than any mother ever could. Father love and mother love are two important, powerful kinds of love. They are loves that keep us alive as babies and shape us as we grow to adulthood, but they are not romantic or sexual love. This is one important way in which the love is love message doesn't stand up. Parent-child love is vital. Without it, children wouldn't survive. But it's vitally different from sexual and romantic love. So what about sexual and romantic love, the kind of love that pulls people toward marriage? Well, just as God made fatherhood and motherhood to tell us the story of his love for his people, so he made male and female, sex and marriage, to tell us the story of Jesus' love for his church. The Love Story 
At the beginning of the Bible, we see God creating humans, male and female, in his image and designing them for relationship with him and with each other. Genesis tells us that when a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we start to see this picture of marriage being used as a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. Old Testament prophets compare God to a faithful husband and God's people, the Israelites, to a wife. God desperately loves his people, but his people keep cheating on him by worshiping other so-called gods. Time after time, God forgives Israel and welcomes her back, but it doesn't seem like this marriage is going to work. A holy God just cannot live with sinful people. Then Jesus comes. We saw in chapter 3 that Jesus made extraordinary claims about himself. One of Jesus' amazing claims is that he is the bridegroom. Jesus took on God's role as husband. God's marriage to his people in the Old Testament didn't work because his people kept sinning and running away from him. But Jesus came to pay the price for sin so that his people could finally be with him forever. In fact, as we read on in the New Testament, we find that God's plan for marriage from the very first was for it to give us a picture of how much Jesus loves us. Paul explains in a letter to one of the first churches that Christian marriage is meant to give us a glimpse of Jesus' love. Jesus loves and sacrifices for his people. He went to the cross to die for us. Husbands are meant to love their wives like that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 This is an amazing call. A husband could only do this with Jesus' help, and even the best husband will never fully measure up. But a really wonderful husband who loves his wife and is willing to give up everything for her gives us a little window into Jesus' love. What about wives? In this picture, the wife plays the part of God's people, who gladly submit to Jesus and follow his lead. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his Savior. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. The call on wives to submit to their husbands isn't because women are somehow inferior to men, just as the call on husbands to give up their lives for their wives isn't because they are less valuable than women. It also doesn't mean that all women should submit to all men, or that a wife should never say no to her husband if he is treating her badly. In fact, a husband abusing his wife is the total opposite of the picture the Bible gives us, where husbands are called again and again to love their wives, and to understand and honor them. The call for husbands and wives to play different roles in Christian marriage is not because men are smarter than women, or because women need more love than men, but because Jesus and the church play different roles in the much greater marriage to which human marriage points. It's like two actors taking different parts in a play. God made us so that men and women have different bodies, picturing the radical difference between Jesus and us. But he also made us so that men and women's bodies could fit together in a life-giving closeness which gives us a picture of Jesus and his church. Paul quotes from the Bible story about the first human couple to make his point. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, quoted by Ephesians 5.31. Paul says this one flesh reality is a deep mystery, and that it's about Christ and the church. In that picture, every believer, male or female, is part of Christ's bride and a member of Christ's body. I know this all sounds weird. Jesus is one human, but he said he was the bridegroom for all God's people, and that means all God's people form one body together. These are metaphors like the idea of God as our Father, but as we saw in chapter 5, the Bible often packages the most important truths in metaphors, and the idea that if we trust in Jesus, we are united to him like a husband and a wife, or like a head and a body, 
is one of the most important truths in the Bible. A Whole New World When Jasmine and Aladdin fly on the magic carpet, they sing a song called A Whole New World about how their love has changed everything. We search so hard for romantic love because we think it will change the world for us. A good marriage is a wonderful thing, but if you think, as I did when I was your age, that getting married will change your world and make all your problems go away, you're going to be disappointed. Marriage is not a destination. It's a signpost. At its best, marriage points us to the life-changing closeness of being with Jesus. But our sense that romantic love should make a whole new world is not completely wrong. In the last book of the Bible, we see the marriage of Jesus and his church bringing heaven and earth back together. A human marriage can't remake the world, but the wedding of Jesus to his church will literally begin a whole new, never-ending world, and we can be part of that new world if we're trusting in him. So what does all of this mean for human relationships? A good gift in the wrong place. Last weekend, I went camping with my family. After dinner, we built a campfire and toasted s'mores. My 10-year-old daughter especially enjoyed learning how to build a fire. But while a campfire in a clearing is a wonderful thing, what would have happened if my daughter had come home and built a campfire in the living room? The Bible teaches that sex between a man and a woman is a wonderful gift from God and an important part of marriage. Sex can bring joy and create life, but like a campfire in the living room, sex can also bring terrible hurt and heartbreak. As we grow up, our bodies and our hearts can pull us toward others in powerful ways. The films and songs we enjoy often suggest that we should try out sex with different people to find out which person suits us best, like trying on different clothes until you find the perfect fit. But experts have interviewed thousands of people to find out whether having lots of sexual relationships has made them happy, and it turns out that in general, it doesn't. A loving marriage tends to make both men and women happier. But having sexual relationships with lots of different people tends to make us less happy. Like eating too much candy, it might feel good in the moment, but the after-effects can be miserable. According to the research, this is especially true for women. God created sex to go with deep, lifelong commitment, and researchers have found that having sex with just one person consistently does correlate with happiness. But when we pull sex and commitment apart, it hurts. When I was in college, people thought it was really weird that I wasn't planning to have sex with anyone before I got married, if I did. But as I talked more with other women about this, they would often tell me privately they wished that they had made the same decision. The different relationships they'd been in hadn't brought them the happiness they had expected and had often left them feeling empty. One friend I met later shared the same thing. After years of sleeping with different guys, she realized that the lifestyle was making her truly unhappy. She felt like she had to suit up in emotional armor and pretend she didn't care. I told her about the research showing that having sex with lots of different people generally makes people less happy. She felt frustrated and asked, why wasn't I told this in high school? Some of my friends have had even worse experiences. Some have been forced to have sex when they didn't want to. Others had their bodies touched in sexual ways by adults when they were kids. This can happen to boys as well as girls, and often it's done by someone the kids trust, maybe even a family member. If you've experienced this, I'm so sorry. What has happened to you is not okay, and it is not your fault. People who abuse young people in this way usually tell the person they've abused to keep it secret or make that person think it's their fault so the victim will feel ashamed and not tell anyone. Sometimes the victims worry that if they did tell someone, they wouldn't be believed. If that's how you feel, you're not alone. Please tell a grown-up you trust and get help. 
You are not betraying the person who did this to you by telling. You are actually helping them too. Letting someone do something terribly wrong is very bad for them, as well as for the people they are hurting. Sexual touching between adults and kids is the opposite of God's design. It breaks God's heart. But what about people who are both adults and who want to make a lifelong commitment to each other in marriage, but just happen to be two women or two men? Why would God say no to that? A bit about me. When I was a kid, I wanted to get married someday. The books I read and the songs I heard all pointed to one thing. Falling in love was the path to happiness. But I had a problem. The people I found myself dreaming of were girls. I kept hoping I'd grow out of it. When I turned 18 and went to college, I thought that surely then I'd start liking boys. But right away, I fell in love with a girl again. I couldn't shake it. You may not relate to that at all. Maybe you have only ever felt tra attracted to the opposite sex, or perhaps you haven't felt much drawn to either girls or boys yet, except as friends. But if you're thinking, I'm like that, you're not alone. A professor named Lisa Diamond at the University of Utah has found that about 14% of women and 7% of men experience same-sex attraction, at least sometimes. This means that if you have 10 friends, it's likely that one of them will experience same-sex attraction. Many people assume that our attractions are something we're just born with and they never change. You're either gay or straight. But Professor Diamond has found that it's much more complicated. First, while 14% of women and 7% of men experience significant same-sex attraction, only 1% of women and 2% of men are only ever attracted to other women or other men. She has also found that people's feelings can change over time. Many people have the same patterns of attraction throughout their lives, but some people start off feeling attracted to girls and then later find themselves attracted to boys, or vice versa. I've been happily married to a man for 13 years, but that's not because my attraction has changed. If I'm ever attracted to someone outside my marriage, it's always to a woman. But I'm not in the 1% of women who can only be attracted to other women. So I'm able to be happily married to a man, and just like any other married Christian, when I find myself attracted to someone other than my husband, I need to ask Jesus for help not to follow the pull. For many Christians who experience same-sex attraction, however, getting married is not the right choice. For example, my friend Lou started being attracted to other boys when he was a young teenager. As an adult man, he has found he's in the 2% of men who are really only attracted to other men, so he has remained single. But why should being a Christian make a difference? Why shouldn't I have married a woman? Why shouldn't my friend Lou just marry a man? What does the Bible have to say about these questions? One of my best friends found out the answer when she was in college. A surprising story. Rachel grew up in a non-religious home. When she was 15, she found herself attracted to a beautiful high school senior girl. She pursued this girl and started a sexual relationship. It felt so right. But the relationship was on and off, and she tried out sleeping with other girls and with other boys as well. Rachel found that she was much more attracted to girls, and when she settled back into her relationship with her first girlfriend, it felt great. What's more, she had been accepted at Yale, one of the top universities in America. Her life was going so well, until disaster struck. Her girlfriend broke up with her. Rachel thought that Christians were dumb, but in the hopelessness of having lost the girl she loved, she started wondering if maybe there was a God after all. She googled religious words to see what she could find out. When she started reading about Jesus, she was embarrassed by how much she liked him. Jesus in the Bible seemed so different from the Jesus she'd thought Christians followed. For one thing, he was amazingly clever. 
But Rachel had heard that Christians were against gay marriage, so she worried that saying yes to Jesus would mean saying no to sexual relationships with women. Rachel asked some friends who identified as Christians, and they told her that she didn't have to choose. They said it had all been a misunderstanding, and that if Rachel read the Bible rightly, she'd find it didn't say that she couldn't marry a woman someday. But when Rachel looked at the Bible passages they were quoting, she could see it wasn't true. She found that the Bible makes it clear in multiple places that it's not okay for Christians to have same-sex sexual relationships. For example, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he presents gay and lesbian relationships as a consequence of people turning away from God. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, he lists gay relationships alongside cheating on your husband or wife, practicing other forms of sexual immorality, worshiping idols, stealing, constantly getting drunk, abusing people with your words, and other forms of sin as things that make us unrighteous and unable to inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul is not saying all of this to keep people out of God's kingdom, but to invite them in. He points out that some of the Corinthian Christians had done all of these things. And then he says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 When Rachel discovered that the Bible really was against gay relationships, she was very upset. She thought she might want to start following Jesus, but she didn't want to give up her dream of marrying a woman. In the end, though, she decided Jesus was demanding her total allegiance. Following him meant being willing to give up anything else, and life with Jesus was worth it. In fact, if Jesus really had the power to make her right with God and to welcome her into eternal life, it would be stupid <coughs> to say no to him for the sake of any human love. But for a long time, while Rachel knew that the Bible said no to same-sex marriage, she didn't understand the reasons why. And that's how many people feel today. Love, not hate. For many people today, the Bible's no to same-sex marriage is a big reason for thinking Christianity isn't true. Many of my friends would say that the Bible only teaches that sex between two men or two women isn't okay because the people who wrote the Bible were hateful, self-righteous, and ignorant. They just didn't understand how two men or two women could have the kind of faithful sexual love that goes with marriage. I can see why people think this. Sadly, many Christians have treated gay and lesbian people hatefully and looked down on them with self-righteous judgment, but that's not what the Bible calls us to. Paul, who wrote many of the Bible passages that say gay relationships are not allowed for Christians, was intentionally single, so you might think he was being judgmental. But if we look more carefully, we find that Paul did not look down on people in gay relationships as if he was better than they were. In fact, right after telling his friend Timothy that all sex outside marriage, including gay relationships, goes against God's plan, Paul said that he himself was the worst sinner and that Jesus saved him to show that even someone as terrible as Paul could be made right with God. It's also not true that people in Jesus' day just didn't understand same-sex attraction. Like my friend Rachel, some of the first Christians had a history of gay relationships. They lived in a culture where many people thought it was okay for men, at least, to sleep with other men, as well as with, as well as with women they weren't married to. While same-sex marriage wasn't generally practiced in the Roman Empire, the notorious Emperor Nero, who ruled during the time when much of the New Testament was being written, at one point got dressed up as a woman and married another man. The Christian insistence that sex only belonged in marriage between one man and one woman would have seemed as strange to many people back then as it does to people now. But as we have seen, the Bible says that sex and marriage isn't just about two people making each other happy. It's meant to be a little model of Jesus' love for his church. If you've ever built a model airplane, you know that the pieces, wings, cockpit, tail, wheels, etc., 
match up with pieces of a real airplane. Likewise, the pieces of Christian marriage match up with Jesus' love for his church. Jesus' love is faithful and forever, so marriage must be to just one person until death. Jesus' love is life-giving and creative, so marriage is the place to create new humans. Jesus' love is sacrificial, so husbands are called to sacrifice for their wives. And Jesus is different from us, so marriage is a love across difference, male and female. In fact, God designed humans so that the differences between a man's body and a woman's body would be the exact thing that enables men and women to have babies together. Switching the design of marriage to two men or two women is like putting two left wings on your model, on your model plane. It doesn't match the original. Of course, just as a model plane doesn't really fly, marriage isn't half as good as Jesus' love. And that's why it's totally fine not to get married. In fact, the Bible says that staying single can actually be better than getting married. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. If we're following Jesus, we don't need another sinful human to complete us. Some of the most wonderful Christians I know are single. For example, my friend Lou, whom I mentioned earlier, serves our church community in a hundred different valuable ways, from making meals for homeless people to leading singing at our church summer camp. Or my friend Mary is a single woman and one of the best Bible teachers I know. Single people of all ages play vital roles in the church and help us all to see that relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. Likewise, good marriages help us all understand a bit more of what the Bible means when it says that Jesus loves us. But marriage isn't the only relationship that points us to Jesus' love. In fact, far from being against same-sex love, the Bible calls us to love people of our own sex very deeply. Greater love has no one than this. As we saw earlier, we glimpse God's love for us through the love of the best fathers and mothers for their kids and in the love of the best husbands for their wives, but we also find echoes of God's love in friendship. Maybe you know how special friendship closeness is, or maybe you long for close friends and haven't found them yet. If we believe what Jesus says, friendship is very precious. In fact, it's one of the very best windows into his love. Greater love has no one than this, said Jesus, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15:13. The Bible says that Christians are one body together, that we are brothers and sisters, knit together in love, and comrades in arms. Paul calls his friend Onesimus his very heart, and he says he has among the Christians in Thessalonica, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is very intimate language but it is not sexual. People will sometimes ask, are you in a relationship? When they mean, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? But in the Bible, friendship is a very important relationship. Unlike marriage, it's a kind of relationship that we can enjoy with lots of different people all at once. In fact, God made us to have multiple friends. And while we can certainly enjoy friendship with someone of the opposite sex, the deepest friendship intimacy is a particular gift for people of the same sex. A few months ago, a woman whose partner is also a woman said she felt sorry for me because I had never experienced love or passion with another woman. I told my friend Rachel about this, and Rachel replied, she's wrong about love. Like Rachel, I have said no to romantic relationships with other women, but I enjoy deep, joyful, God-given love with my close female friends, like my friend Natasha, who has been my best friend since we were both 16, and whom I text with every day, even though we live on different continents but that doesn't mean it's always easy to say no to our desires. 
saying no to our desires is hard. Not long after Rachel started following Jesus, her ex-girlfriend called her and wanted to make up. Rachel managed to say no that day, but she ended up having a sexual relationship with another young woman at Yale and even went back to her ex-girlfriend for a time when she thought she'd been a Christian long enough to resist that attraction. Gradually, with the help of God's Spirit and the love of Christian friends, Rachel was able to grow in her obedience and learn to say no to her desires. But it wasn't easy. The fact is that all of us will likely sometimes be attracted to people we're not married to. This is true whether you're attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex, and it's true whether you're single or married. If we're followers of Jesus, we'll need help when those feelings arise. We'll also need assurance of God's forgiveness if, like Rachel as a young believer in college, we fail big time. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus wasn't soft on sexual sin. The Old Testament taught that it was wrong to commit adultery by sleeping with someone you're not married to. But Jesus said if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. That means that pretty much all of us who are old enough to have sexual desires have sinned because we've all looked lustfully at people we're not married to. But Jesus also taught that none of us are beyond his love and forgiveness. In fact, Jesus was often criticized for spending time with people others thought of as sexual sinners, and he spends time with sexual sinners today, offering love, forgiveness, and help. For some followers of Jesus, a big area where they need forgiveness and help is with looking at sexual images on screens. Looking through screens instead of windows. Real relationships take risk. We risk our hearts when we reach out to someone else. Because of this, looking at pornography, sexual videos or photos, can seem like a safer route. Maybe that's a path you've chosen, or maybe you discovered sexual images by accident on a phone or computer screen. Those images got stuck in your head, and you found yourself going back for more. If that's you, you're not alone. By the age of 15, as many as one in three people have looked at pornography online, and it can affect both boys and girls. Watching pornography might feel good in the moment, but, like any other drug, it can leave us feeling empty and make it harder for us to relate to others. Pornography also hurts the people we are watching. Their bodies are being used in ways that undermine their value. Plugging into imaginary people unplugs us from real people, or worse, it makes us treat real people as if they're imaginary, just there to fulfill our fantasies. Maybe you've acted like that. Or maybe that's how other people have treated you. Either way, a phone or a computer screen is not a window into real love. It's a fake to break our hearts. Slowly, click by click, like a hammer chipping away at stone. You're worth more than that, and so are the people you're watching. If you find yourself stuck looking at sexual photos or videos, get help and break free. Like many other forms of sin, pornography makes us ashamed to ask for help from friends or mentors because we think they won't understand. But you don't need to be ashamed. Many people have this struggle, and Jesus is ready to forgive you as soon as you ask. One time, when religious people were criticizing Jesus for hanging out with sinners, he told them that it wasn't the healthy who needed a doctor, but the sick. What the religious people didn't realize was that they were just as sick as the sinners they despised. But because they thought they were good, they weren't coming to Jesus. We all need help. Growing up, I knew the Bible was against same-sex romance, but I didn't know that it was okay to talk about my feelings of attraction to other girls. So I just kept quiet and hoped and prayed my feelings would go away. 
If you can relate to that, I'd encourage you to talk to one or two trusted Christian friends. If you can't relate, think about how you could be a trusted friend for someone else, whether they're struggling with same-sex attraction, pornography addiction, or resisting a sexual relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Jesus doesn't want Christians to bear things alone. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us along the way. I wish now that I'd talked to Christian friends growing up, instead of hiding my feelings and hoping they'd disappear. When my attractions didn't change, I had to trust that Jesus' love was better than the love any woman could give me. I still have to trust that today. Despite being married to a wonderful man, I have to trust Jesus with the peace of me that sometimes longs for romance with a woman. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll have to trust your unfulfilled desires to Jesus too, whomever you're attracted to and whether you get married or not. All of us have to say no to some of our longings in order to say yes to Jesus, and we all need each other for help along the way. We all need love. God made us thrive with multiple close relationships, with brothers and sisters, parents, friends, and, for some of us, husbands, wives, and kids. Like a spider weaving its web, we need multiple points of connection to thrive. We're not designed to dangle from a single thread. At the heart of the web is Jesus, the one who made us and who loves us more than anyone else ever could. He is the only person who can make all our dreams of love come true. In the made-up story of Frozen, Anna showed her love for Elsa by being willing to die to save her sister. In the true story of Jesus, we see that same kind of love. By this we know love, says Jesus' friend John, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 Anna's act of true love saved her sister's life and thawed her own frozen heart. Jesus' act of true love paid for our sin and won us eternal life with him in the closest relationship we could ever imagine. Closer than marriage, closer than friendship, as close as a head with a body. Put your trust in Jesus and nothing, not even death itself, will be able to separate you from that love. Chapter 7 Summary Our culture says that love is love, so it's fine for someone to have a romantic and sexual relationship with someone of their same sex. The Bible says that God is love and that he gives us glimpses of his love through different kinds of relationship, including parent to child, husband to wife, and friend to friend. In the Bible, human marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his people. This is a faithful, exclusive, life-creating, never-ending love, and it is a love across difference. So human marriage is designed to be faithful, exclusive, life-creating, never-ending, and across the difference of male and female. No human marriage will ever be as good as Jesus' relationship with us. Marriage at its best is just a little scale model of a much greater reality. Singleness isn't second best. The Bible says being single, like Paul, can be even better than being married. Sex is a good gift in marriage, but it does not belong in other relationships. In particular, it does not belong in relationships between adults and kids. If you are experiencing sexual touching from an adult, tell someone you trust and get help. The Bible is clear that same-sex sexual relationships are not okay for Christians. But instead of being judgmental and hateful of people in gay relationships, Christians are called to love their gay and lesbian friends and to share the gospel with them, just as they would with any other non-believers. All Christians will need to say no to romantic desire and sexual attraction at times. This is often hard, 
and we need help from God's Spirit and from his people. We're not meant to struggle alone. Like illegal drugs, pornography is addictive and destructive, and it ultimately leaves us feeling miserable and alone. If you're stuck in a pornography addiction, turn to Jesus for forgiveness and get help from friends and mentors to break free. Friendship is one of the greatest pictures of Jesus' love for us. God has designed us to enjoy multiple close friendships and to find help and encouragement through them. Jesus' love is the greatest love there is. It's worth giving up any other relationship for him.